Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. The London-based AI lab, Google's DeepMind, is currently building a series of independent learning and thinking intelligent computer systems. That means computer systems that can learn and think for themselves. And some of the world's smartest minds, including Stephen Hawking and Tesla founder Elon Musk, have warned that super-intelligent machines, as described in the book by Oxford University philosopher Nick Bostrom, could end up being the greatest threat to humanity. They're concerned that computers could outsmart humans within a couple of decades and they could decide that eh, humans are no longer necessary. So far, the company's algorithms have been used to defeat humans at complex board games like Go, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and they helped Google to cut its huge electricity bill. But DeepMind ultimately wants to solve intelligence and use it to make the world a better place. Well, in a bid to reduce the chance of creating dangerous artificial intelligence, DeepMind has hired A1 safety experts to mitigate the chance of its artificial intelligence developing into something dangerous, according to LinkedIn. The average American IQ is 96, and 24% are above average. So it's not hard for computers to be considerably smarter than the majority of people. It's also not difficult to imagine smart computers wondering why the hell most people are even here? Honey Boo Boo and Sarah Palin come sort of instantly to mind. So maybe we should rethink these safeguards. What do you reckon? Mm. Now, millennials call themselves the most entrepreneurial generation, but in reality, they aren't building startups like past generations have. A study by the Economic Innovation Group found that 72% of millennials think startups and entrepreneurships are absolutely essential for new innovation and to create jobs. And 78% think working for a startup is a signal of success. And I'd agree with all that. But only 22% of millennials would start their own business. The majority would rather stay at one company and work their way up with only 25% actually planning to move from job to job. Now, when you break it down by gender, white women and white men are the most hesitant about starting their own business, while black women are the most entrepreneurial, and that's been seen by the huge growth in enterprises created by black women. 39% of black women say that starting their own company is the best way to advance their careers. So what is it that's preventing millennials from becoming entrepreneurs? 
More than 40% said access to capital, while for women and majorities, minorities, start that again, while for women and minorities, that number was much higher, 45% of women, 50% for Hispanics, and 48% of blacks said a lack of financial means holds them back. When you look at it, though, actually, millennials have got it all against them. They've got the highest student debt. Their annual income is less than previous generations, and they're more likely to be unemployed than Generation Xs, even though they're more educated. So it's really not a surprise that millennials don't want to take the financial risk of starting their own company. But it's startups and innovation that drive the economy. And it's America's incredible innovation that enables us to lead the world. And if millennials aren't participating in that entrepreneurship, that could signal a major problem for the economy as a whole. Now, over the last few weeks, I've undergone a series of coronary-related tests and I passed them with flying colours. However... Every time I go to the cardiac physician's office, I'm filled with trepidation. I'm really nervous. You know, you don't know when they do all those tests what the hell they're going to find. And there's all those words like carotid artery and all those things that really scare the shit out of me. So I'm really looking forward to the coming wearables, wearables that detect health issues way before they happen. Future generations of Apple Watches, Fitbits, Android Wear gadgets will detect and mitigate health problems in real time. So rather than just simply relaying health data, thanks partly to the federally funded MD2K project, we're applying big data tools to mobile sensors. Now, the project's designed to develop hardware and software that compiles and analyzes health data generated by wearable sensors in order to anticipate and prevent adverse health events. So currently, commercial wearable devices, they're not really suitable for research because they only gather a few types of health data rather than raw sensor data, and their batteries can't support a full day's worth of high-frequency data collection. But MD2K's EasySense wearable is a cardiorespiratory monitor that can measure lung fluid level in congestive heart failure patients by using a circular antenna to obtain stable measurements irrespective of orientation. The MD2K team, which spans 12 different universities, collects a variety of raw reliable sensor data for 24 hours per charge from three devices. Now, MotionSense is a smart watch that deciphers users' movements through sensors and attracts your heart rate variability. EasySense is a micro radar sensor which is worn near the chest to measure heart activity and lung fluid volume. And AutoSense is a chest band that gleans electrocardiogram and respiration data. 
Now, all these three devices stream the data via Wi-Fi to Android phones, where a software platform processes the information and translates it into digital biomarkers about the wearer's health and risk factors. So MD2K's Motion Sense HRV wristband has three types of LED sensors, and it's superior to motion tractors and commercial smartwatches, such as the Apple Watch, which have only one LED sensor. So MD2K can calculate differences in the ways a user's body blood absorbs its various sensor lights and is able to complete, compute heart rate via variability instead of just measuring a user's heart rate. Now, it's inevitable that these medical advances will rapidly trickle down to consumer wearables. Deep linking technologies gained considerable attention over the past years by enabling marketers to enhance their engagement with mobile, mobile app users. Deep links provide a clear way for app publishers to identify, address and transport users to specific content within apps. So ultimately, deep links can help app publishers achieve more installs, user engagement and conversions, which after all, are the keys to any app's success. They can even have a significant effect on a company's bottom line. Yet the vast majority of links on mobiles are still not deep links. Many marketers are missing out on a massive opportunity to direct traffic or more effective sales channel in apps by using deep links. Out of the 84% of websites that offer an Android mobile app, and the 88% that offer an iOS mobile app, only 30% and 19% respectively have integrated deep linking. A report from BI Intelligence explains the differences between different types of deep links, why this new technology is critical to the success of all apps, and in what types of marketing materials it can be used. So deep links can help marketers optimize their app marketing campaigns, increase conversions, improve engagements, and build retention. Based on an analysis of 117 retail apps from the internet retailer 500 e-commerce brands, Pure Oxygen found that 35% employ URL deep linking schemes. Only 35%, so 65% don't. Now, implementing deep linking into email campaigns can have a substantial effect on a company's bottom line, creating up to 250,000 smackers a month in additional revenue if you're doing 10 million emails. So that's 250K a month in additional revenue. So for reference of scale, many e-commerce companies send around 300 million to a billion emails a year or 30 million to 80 million emails a month. So companies that uh, incorporate deep links into their mobile strategy and almost every mobile engagement channel and it can make a hell of a difference to the bottom line. 
So you can include it on your mobile web page, in SMS messages, emails, push notifications, and even within their apps through in-app messages. Each of these channels can be linked directly into applications. So if you're marketing by email, you have to look into deep thinking. So I guess you've seen the publicity over the last couple of days. How cool is Amazon? They've just unveiled a grocery store called Amazon Go without any lines and with no checkout counters. So you just take the items you want off the shelf and when you're done, you simply leave the store and the order gets charged to your Amazon account. Now, Amazon Go works by using computer vision and sensors which detect what items you're taking out of the store. So when you walk in, you scan an app, you do your normal shopping and the sensors throughout the store identify the items in your cart and you get billed later. It's just like shoplifting, except you're being watched the whole time by a plethora of cameras and sensors and you get a bill at the end of the day. But Amazon Co. is just like your well-stocked convenience store, like say, I don't know, 7-Eleven. It will have everyday popular items, snacks and drinks and pre-made food like salads and sandwiches, pre-packed meal kits, grocery essentials like bread and milk. But for customers, the benefits are terrific. There's no lines, no screwing around with those annoying bloody self-checking machines. But the downside, Amazon can track you and your phone throughout the store, track the items you buy, as well as the ones you put back on the shelf. Add to this all the other information that Amazon has on you, and you're in the firing line for a never ending barrage of offers. Amazon Go does away with human cashiers. So it's probably not long before robots physically stock the store. So a whole slew of other regular jobs bite the dust. The other supermarket chains are probably watching closely and at some point they're going to follow suit. Now, in the U.S., supermarkets employ 3.4 million people. So maybe instead of a commercially-minded president, we need a socially-minded president. Some forecasts for 2030 are predicting 80% unemployment. And this type of technology acceleration employed by Amazon is not going to help. 2,000 Amazon Go stores are due to open in 2017. Now, do you get my 30-second read business newsletter every day? If you don't, you're crazy. We're gaining a heap of subscribers every day and only the occasional unsubscribe, which is a good thing. That's because it's interesting and varied business information that you can read in just 30 seconds. Every now and again, we throw in one that might take a couple of minutes. But we now have about 81,000 daily subscribers. 81,000, that's a hell of a lot. And so I invite you to go to my news website, which is bobpritchard.com, 
and enrol for my daily newsletter. When you go onto the site, a box pops up, just fill it in and bingo, you will start getting the newsletters. It takes just 30 seconds to read and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that is important. My guest today is Frank Scanlon, who started Gustus Vitae at the Venice Beach Farmers Market here in Los Angeles three years ago. His range was quickly picked up by Whole Foods and Gustus Vitae is now available throughout the US, online and in select international markets. So from zero to worldwide exposure in three years, that is phenomenal for a startup. And I'll be back with Frank immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. We're over the past five and a half years or so. We've given you insights into the lives of over 350 of the world's most interesting business people. We've spoken to them about what they do, about challenges they faced, and we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. Now, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business, and we all need to receive advice and assistance from those entrepreneurs who have achieved success. You know, something like 97, 98% of all new businesses fail. So the aim of this program and the aim of um, my daily newsletter is to get give you advice that may assist you to become successful. My guest today is Frank Scanlon. Now, he moved to Los Angeles five years ago after four years in Argentina. Great place, Argentina. And in New Zealand prior to that. Now, with an undergrad in philosophy and a master's in advertising, he worked with large accounts like Sony Electronics as well as small businesses. With encouragement from friends, he started Gustus Vitae at the Venice Beach Farmer's Market. Pretty cool farmer's market, that, uh, three years ago. That's just out of Los Angeles, making all natural certified non-GMO finishing salts and spice 
blends. That's hard to say, particularly this time of the morning. The ingredients are all sourced from local farmers and growers. And his range was quickly picked up by Whole Foods. And Gustus Vita is now available throughout the US, online, and of course in select international markets. Frank, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And you're being heard, heard right around the world. Thank you very much, Bob. Um, it's a huge jump from the tough world of advertising to starting a finishing salt and seasoning company. How the hell did that come about? You just woke up one day in the middle of an advertising campaign and said, aha, I've got it, it's come to me. Finishing salt, seasoning, that's it for me. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, sort of. Um, I'd always kind of um, really enjoyed cooking, um, right. and uh, we're very lucky uh, here in Southern California sure. to have such a uh, enormous variety of farmers and growers um, who have just incredible produce. Um, and so um, it was kind of two things. One was I started mixing uh, herbs and uh, spices with salts and giving them away as gifts. Right. Um, didn't have a whole lot of money, and they're, they're a pretty good uh, Christmas gift or, uh, or housewarming gift or, or host gift. Right. Um, and people liked them. Yeah. Um, and the second one was uh, a girl I was uh, dating at the time uh, came home with uh, truffle salt, which was the first time I've had truffle salt, and it was fantastic. It is uh, she said, can you believe it was only $23? <clears throat> and I was like, that is that is crazy. Uh, so I kind of looked um, at it, and I thought, hey, there might be a thing here if people are willing to pay uh, $23 for a, a great product. And we kind of looked um, uh, around and didn't see a whole lot of... Um, salt and, and spice companies that were really uh, using kind of natural and, and uh, organic and, and non-GMO ingredients. Um, there's, you know, there's kind of, you know, the iodized table salt that we're all familiar with. Um, right. And then kind of, you know, guys like me making stuff um, in, you know, small amounts for, um, for friends and family. So we thought, you know, maybe we could um, try and make this available to more people and, and kind of try and complement um, the incredible bounty of, of food that's available here in Southern California. All right, I'm, I've just been talking about on the program about how millennials are not becoming entrepreneurs because of financial concerns, um, and I'm not suggesting you're a millennial, but how did you address the issue of going from a good regular gig that paid you money to, right. one, that, to one that initially, initially anyway, it's all about risk, starting up a company, you know, how did, how did you address the, those issues? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I did it simultaneously. So the, the farmer's market was over the weekend. Um, okay. And though I, I do, I did then and do now work weekends. Um, you know, there's always a bit of time that you can carve out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, salt, um, we use um, sea salt harvested from the San Francisco Bay. Um, that's not that expensive. And really the, the main cost um, that we, uh, that we, you know, we were using was our time, uh, basically. Um, and so, um, like I said, we didn't even have like a stand or a booth. We had a little umbrella um, a table and uh, four tins of, of salt that would mix up with uh, some chervil and herbs de Provence. Um, and we just kind of thought it'd be, you know, a lark. It was never really intended to be a thing. Yeah, um, right. And uh, we were very, very lucky um, and, and are uh, still um, by a lady. Uh, her name is Kimberly Albright. Um, she worked as a forager for Whole Foods. Um, and her job is to kind of go out in local communities and find um, small businesses, um, and we weren't even a business at that stage. Don't tell the health inspector, um, <laughs> and uh, and kind of see if they have a you know a product that people might like, and kind of guide them along. And so she really kind of made us uh, into a, a company, helped us with our packaging and 
our ingredient sourcing. Um, and then before you knew it, we were in Whole Foods, and then, you know, we were raving the races. So what did, um, how did you, where did you prepare this? On the kitchen bench or something? Is that how you yeah. started? Um, California, um, we're very fortunate. They have what's called the cottage uh, food laws. Right. Um, basically, uh, if you're under a certain um, uh, total income, you're allowed to make food in your home kitchen. You have to obviously get permitted and certified. Right. Um, but uh, it's a really good way for people who, you know, maybe make a great cookie or uh, a lovely jam or, in our case, salt. Um, and you can kind of give it a go and, and kind of expand it, um, you know, within reason. So how important... Uh you know, you get, when you go to markets, particularly some of the bigger ones in Southern California, there's loads and loads and loads of, of products, uh, yeah. sim, not sim, not the same, but similar types of products. Um, how important is the packaging uh, in in actually getting people to say, "Wow, that looks pretty good. That that looks like a gift." Yeah. Uh, so um, our our tins, uh, they they look like this. Right. Uh, and they're, uh, they've got a little shaker on them. And then our kind of thing is we put uh, magnets uh, <clears throat> on the bottom of them. Um, and uh, the idea being that, um, you know, I think everyone, uh, certainly I did uh, until I started the company, uh, and you might, um, has a spice drawer that's basically an archaeological uh, exhibit. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, who knows how long it's been in there or if it's actually labeled correctly. Right. Um, so our idea was by having them be magnetized, you could put them, uh, on your fridge, uh, on your hood, on your barbecue, whatever, and you would see them, and then you would use them. Uh, you know, as a business owner, it's good because it means, means you uh, need to buy more. Right. Um, but as a you know a home cook, um, it means that you know you're actually using these spices and going through them. Yeah, um, so I, I think it's very important. You know, um, I think packaging is very important. The the biggest problem with the archaeological spice drawer is that these days they make all everything in different sizes so you've got one sort of seven inches tall and you've got another one right. three inches tall and little packets and yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly right. so what percentage of people do you think buy your product for a gift and what percentage actually ever get to use it <laughs> Um, I mean, I would hope that everyone uh, gets yeah. a chance to use it. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly our uh, intention is um, to be a compliment, uh, you know, as I mentioned, to, um, you know, what people are traditionally cooking. So sure. Um, sure. we have a, a, a large range of salts, um, and then we have a, a pretty uh, decent range of seasoning blends, um, and they're all kind of crafted after a cuisine. So um, taste of Thailand is kind of like a Thai green curry or taste yeah. of Jamaican, it's like a Jamaican seasoning, uh, et cetera. So the idea being that you know, if you're not that comfortable in the kitchen or, you know, you're making chicken every night, you can have a chicken from every different kind of cuisine. That's a great idea. That's a big appeal. I'm actually waiting for my box of um, samples to arrive. They haven't they haven't come yet, but they, I'm sure any day now they're... <laughs> so what's the driving ethos behind Gustus Vitae and... and what is, well, first of all, what does Gustus Vitae mean? And uh, then what's the driving ethos behind it? Uh, so uh, Gustus Vitae means uh, taste of life um, in Latin. Right. Um, which my sister is actually studying right now and, and curses me for having inspired to because I, I guess it's very hard. I know. Very little Latin. Um, and uh, kind of our idea is to uh, empower people to, to share the magic of cooking. So um, to really kind of demystify it and make it really easy. So... You know, uh, as I mentioned with our, our variety of, of seasoning blends, um, you know, if you were just having broccoli, you could have, uh, you know, Cajun broccoli or, um, 
uh, a Chinese five spice, uh, we call it Taste of Shanghai, uh, on your broccoli. And then if you ever watch those cooking shows, the chef always at the end does a da 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 with the, uh, the salt, uh, which really kind of brings out the flavor, and that's the idea is that you kind of finish it with um, a little flourish uh, of salt as you like. It's a great idea. Uh, so you began at a farmer's market, like a yes. million other startup people that are making stuff in their kitchen, but yep. most most of those wither on the vine and just die, And or at best, they just make wages. They go out there, they stay there all day, and they just make enough money to pay their wages. So how have you managed growth from farmer's market? You mentioned about um, Whole Foods, but... How did you expand that to regional and national distribution? What was the key behind that? Um, so I, I was fortunate um, in advertising that I'd worked um, on the account side um, primarily, but I also got right. to work in uh, new business. Right. Um, and uh, you just get used to hearing no a lot. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think to your, sure. your earlier point, uh, when you mentioned, I think something like 97 or 98 uh, percent, and I would say probably even higher in food uh, businesses fail. Yeah. Usually pretty smartly. Um, and so uh, what we found was that, you know, once we had the backing of Whole Foods and, and confirmation from the people at the farmer's market that they liked it, um, you know, I had no problem in picking up the phone uh, for retailers or online markets that we wanted to be in. Yeah. And calling and being nice. You know, they say, you know, half a life is showing up. Certainly half a sales is just, you know, picking up the phone. Absolutely. And being Some, persistent. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we joke, you know, we have these sad email chains of, you know, we're getting in touch with a buyer for a, a grocery store that we want to be in. Yeah. And it will be 18, 19 emails deep of, hey, how's it going? And just variety is bad for six months. And then finally, you know, it'll be the top of their email queue and they'll be like, yeah, come on in. Yeah. And uh, if you have a good product and you believe in it, um, you know, a lot of times it's just being the last person there uh, that sticks it out. It is tough selling to buyers from particularly the uh, supermarket chains. I've done a bit of that over the years for clients. That is a tough business. And you're right. You've got to really persevere. But I think that's a good lesson for anybody in business that, you know, most people fail because they don't persist long enough and hard enough. You've got to keep knocking at the door. Um, I think I read some figures somewhere, you might be able to correct me, that uh, the average person gives up after about three shots and it takes something like eight shots to actually get through and sell somebody something. Yeah, and, and I would say in many cases, uh, you know, if that's the average, um, there's certainly outliers um, that, that, you know, that, that take a lot longer. Yeah. Um, it's a very humbling experience. Um, sure it is. But, um, <laughs> But, you know, it's, 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 part, it's part of what we do. And, and a lot of, you know, the feedback that you get that's negative feedback, um, you know, it's very, very useful. You know, people, um, we've probably been through seven iterations of our tin, um, you know, different packaging designs, different labeling, different fonts, the whole thing. And it's, you know, it's an evolving process. And, you know, well, would like it to be, you know, done with innovating and, you know, this is what it is. Um, you know, it's, yeah. an evolving, it's an evolving market and people's tastes change. So when you go into, for, for those listening, when you go into a, um, say, a supermarket buyer, yeah. um, he, he would want to know that you've got the means to be able to continue to supply product when they need it and that you've got, um, you know, that you look like a real company, don't you? Yeah, um, you know, uh, I really do believe in the, uh, in the kind of fake it till you make it thing. So, yeah. um, you know, at, at the very beginning, you know, I'm, I'm lucky now to have um, an incredible um, you know, group of, of people that I work with. Um, 
without which we wouldn't have a company. Um, but at the beginning, you know, I had, you know, I lose count, 15 different email addresses, purchasing, order receiving, shipments, customer service, whatever, yeah. uh, at our homepage. And everyone had a different imaginary name, whether it was Bob or Susan or Sheila or whatever. Yes. Uh, and they would all respond independently. So we seemed like a real organization. And, yeah. um, you know, you're able to, uh, if you have a good website and you have a bunch of email addresses, you can kind of, you can leverage yourself like that without really spending any money. Um, and then when those first, you know, orders and, and POs come in, well, then you can afford to hire. And, you know, Sheila or Bob or whoever becomes a real. Becomes a real person. Yeah. yeah. Bill Bill Gates did that when he started in his garage with, um, you know, all those years ago with with Microsoft, he had um, he had all these imaginary people with imaginary extensions. You know, call this number and ask for extension, or, or type in extension three seven nine five or something, and they were all, all the same one phone sitting in the corner. Right. <laughs> it's very cool. Now we hear a lot about um, organic and non-GMO food. There's you know a lot of buzz about it, and it's whatever. And we hear about a pending tsunami in the food about the food we eat and how everybody's eating healthy but i looked it up and in reality less than five percent of food we eat falls into this category 95 percent is still crap so is it only a narrow bind of band of sort of affluent progressives that are perceiving food and their diets differently and everybody else is still the same or is it actually is it actually growing? Because 5% seems like a fairly small percentage. Yeah, uh, and that's very accurate. Um, I, I certainly think um, here in, in Southern California, um, we're, we're overrepresented yeah. um, in terms sure. of um, food options that we have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, I, I think, um, you know, organic doesn't necessarily mean um, healthy. Um, yeah. There's a lot of organic uh, chemicals and pesticides that you can use. Um, lead is technically organic. Right. Um, Oh, is it? Mm. Yeah. Terrific. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, wash your, wash your apples before you eat them, for sure. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, what we're all striving to do is to increase, um, you know, the biodiversity that's available. Right. Um, and just people's choices. Um, and so, um, if in our small way, by offering an alternative to, to mass-produced spices, um, and we can have them, you know, we know where it comes from, we know the farmer, um, and we know that it's non-GMO, um, it's not to say that you have to have it, but it's a choice. Um, and if you want to make that, that choice, um, you should have that, that risk. So are supermarkets actively um, try to promote the growth of organic and non-GMOs in their supermarkets and in the big box stores? Or is it just sort of there to appease um, a certain segment of the market? Um I think I think it's both. Um, there, there's certainly a segment of the market that shops exclusively that way, whether that's through uh, health concerns or dietary concerns. Right. Um, but a lot of stores are moving that way. I believe uh, Whole Foods. Whole Foods is of, great. At the end of next year, will be um, if your product can be certified non-GMO, uh, it must be. Um, right. And a lot of retailers, I know Target uh, is increasing their grocery program with non-GMO options. Um, and, and that's really um, that's that's really the key that we see is that. Um, you know, we don't want to put a mandate down that it must be organic or it must be non-GMO or it must be, you know, wh- whatever. Uh, it just to, to give people that option is really what we strive for. How, how much does price pay play in that um, equation? I mean, if it, obviously you're, if I go out and buy um, a big brand spice, 
yep. it's going to be a hell of a lot cheaper, presumably, than yours. Um, it hasn't got the quality, but a lot of people, there's a huge percentage of population are really concerned about price, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we all are. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the way that, that we think about it is, you know, the price is somewhere. Um, so, you know, if you're growing um, with uh, non-GMO um, and uh, organic produce, um, you're probably going to take more land. Um, yeah. It's going to be harder and you're going to have a lower yield, um, but you'll have a better product. Now, if you cram a whole bunch of GMO plants and soak them in crazy chemicals, your yield will be higher, but you're going to destroy that land. Yeah. So at some point, someone's got to pay the price. So, um, you know, what, what we want to do is give people that option that if they want to eat sustainably and, and healthily, um, yeah, it's a little bit more expensive, but, you know, longer term, we're preserving um, you know, our, our environment and our uh, yeah, because I, I had a quick look um, before I um, before I spoke to you, and last year fast food sales were nearly six hundred billion dollars, while organic food sales were forty three billion. So, and organic food sales increased by five billion dollars, while fast food scarily increased by eighteen billion dollars. So, fast foods. Increasing at three times the the um, dollar rate right. of um, of organic food. So, um, yeah, um, are they going to reverse anytime soon, or is it no? I, I, you know, and I think also too, um, you know, what we consider, um, you know, fast food has changed, uh, you know, a lot in the last. It has. Years. That's true. Um, so uh, Chipotle is a, a large chain uh, here in uh, the United States and in, in sure. Southern California, um, and that's that's fast food. Um, but you know you can eat a you know vegetarian um, meal, or you can have uh, you know farm raised uh, chicken, or um, you know you can obviously pay extra for avocado. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, and so I think our conception of what is fast food and the quality that people are demanding is changing. Um, and there's always going to be, you know, room for that. I, you know, I, I'm guilty of eating in my car uh, a whole bunch of busy people. Um, and so, again, I think it comes back to having that option. Like, yes, you can have uh, a cheeseburger um, if you want, or you can uh, get a salad that's, you know, prepared quickly and, and delivered to you. Sure. So what, what, what's your biggest growth opportunity now? Where do you go from here? Do you just grow um, your exposure in the in the stores that you hear is that a main focus, or is it to get more exposure in more places? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're obviously we're we're based here in LA, uh, and the American market is huge. Yeah. Um, what we've really been focusing on uh, as we refine our product is kind of the, the tip of the spear um, brands like uh, like Whole Food uh, retailers, yeah. um, and really, you know, what we'd like to do eventually is to make this kind of quality. Um, you know, spice and, and salt alternative uh, available to a broader audience. So, um, so kind of larger, uh, more traditional chains. Uh, Target was one that I mentioned. Um, so that um, you know, again, we're not mandating anything, um, but you can choose between um, you know a, a two dollar McCormick spice that you know who knows how old it is or where it was made or, or who, you know, who made it, um, or something where you can trace back every single ingredient and feel confident that you're making a healthy choice for yourself and your family. What's the biggest looming threat to your business? Um, more businesses like ours, probably. Um, you know, uh, it's um, as people are increasingly, you know, making healthier, um, more sustainable choices. 
um, the market's going to grow. Um, and right. so it's kind of up to us to keep innovating um, and offering new alternatives. Um, we just launched a blue cheese sea salt, a Dijon mustard sea salt. We're coming out with Sounds good. Uh, a tzatziki sea salt, uh, a granulated honey sea salt. Um, just kind of listening to what people like. Um, you know, we sit around and have little tasting sessions and try and always make sure that there's a new thing for people to try and experiment. How many products, how many uh, varieties in the range? Uh, we have 32 right now. Wow. Uh, it'll be around 40 um, towards the end of next year. As, as we grow, we'd love to do seasonal things. Um, we get a lot of great feedback from, from chefs and, and home cooks alike. So, um, you know, if you have some ideas or there's a, a salt or a spice you'd like us to whip up for you, we'd be happy to, uh, to get the go. So, uh, you, you now presumably are not doing this in your kitchen anymore. Um, so, how fast is this growth? When did you begin um, the first farmer's market to where you are now? How long's that gap been? Uh, it's, it's been about three years, um, and it's really been, um, I guess, you know, you can say if your basis point is zero, all growth is explosive. Yeah. Um, you know, year on year, we've had, uh, you know, several hundred percentage growth. That's fantastic. That, that's really fantastic. So... The reason that there's 98% failures um, in business, in startup businesses and early stage businesses is manifold, but what were the biggest issues that you faced when you started, when you first um, got your booth? What, what, were the, what were the issues that um, really could have crunched you if you hadn't have been so persistent? Um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's that word, it's, it's persistence. Um, you know, what we found um, is that um, momentum is very, very hard to change. So if you're used to, um, uh, you know, we, we joke, you know, why when there's salt and pepper on the table, well, why did we choose pepper out of every single spice that we could yeah. have chosen? You know, why, why isn't it cumin? I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so, but if you try and change salt and pepper, people are just going to fight you tooth and nail for it. That's just, they go together. Um, sure. And so getting people to try... Um, you know, if I showed you, uh, you know, this tin and it says uh, taste of Thailand, you don't know what that is. Yeah, true. Um, and so, uh, again, it was just kind of persistence of um, making a, a really high quality product that we believe in um, and just getting enough people to try it um, and get a little bit out of their comfort zone. Um, and then once that momentum builds, then, you know, um, they're willing to try it and, and hopefully they like it and they recommend it to their friends. And then their friends try it and, you know, the momentum shifts from, uh, the difficulty of, of penetrating uh, into the market to, you know, enjoying that kind of, you know, rolling rock um, uh, you know, kind, of, kind of growth. So, so if, I, if I rock along to the Venice um, market, yep. do, you, do you just um, have, have the spices or do you have samples of chicken or whatever else? Um, yeah, we're actually we're we're no longer in the uh, the, the Venice Beach uh, farmers market. Oh, okay. It's okay. Pretty much um, ex- exclusively through smaller uh, kind of grocers and, and, and chains like Whole Foods. Uh, we do do various um, kind of pop ups right. um, and certainly sample, uh, and then we participate in, in charitable events. Um, the way that we kind of sample the product is we use either like a jicama or um, this little Persian cucumbers that you don't have to peel the, the skin off. Right. Um, and so the idea being that you know you can kind of taste um, all the different varieties. It, it is funny the number of people who will dredge the cucumber or whatever through the salt, just coat it, and then put it in their mouth and be like, it's too salty. And you're like, well, yeah, you, you put an <laughs> ounce of salt in your mouth. Um, but uh, 
but yeah, it, it, it is a, a little difficult, uh, but sometimes to explain exactly what's in here, you can see you have to taste it. What about online? It would seem to me that that could be a, um, a very lucrative area for you. What are you doing on the in the online area? Yeah, I mean, there, there's um, we've seen uh, huge growth um, online, um, and it's been a really uh, rewarding way to be able to interact with more people. Um, you, you know, getting store by store by store, it's you know time consuming, and you know you have to be in that store in that aisle, see our spice, and try it. You know, whereas online uh, or in your email, um, you, know, you can be exposed to a lot of things. Yeah. So, of course, the difficulty online is getting your message out there, but you could you could effectively use um, your retail sales to be able to do that, couldn't you? Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we found that because we don't have a, a super high price point, um, it, it, it varies. Um, that, you know, a lot of people, if you're buying a, a bunch of products on, on Amazon Pantry or you're on your favorite vitamin site, um, you know, you might be willing to give us a go for, you know, six or seven dollars, eight dollars and, and you know, try it. And, you know, we're fortunate in having a broad enough range that um, if you like one ingredient uh, or one spice or salt, rather, um, you know, maybe we'll try another one. What motivates um, Frank Scanlon to get up in the morning? Uh, we get to play with our food. You know, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. Um, you know, I, I feel very passionate about, um, you know, giving people this, um, this alternative um, to include their cooking and, you know, cooking and, sh- and sharing foods with um, your friends and your family and your loved ones is one of the great joys of life. I really where will um, Gustus Vita be in, say, five years' time? Where do you where do you hope to be? Space. Uh, I, I have no idea. Um, I, have, I have absolutely no idea. You know, um, we're really focused on making a, a high-quality product and people have been responding to that right and we just kind of want to keep our nose down and, and keep you know offering new choices and, and just you know making a, a, a good spice and salt and if people like that and continue to well, then we're, we're doing our job in this growth process have you had to, to raise funds at all to um to expand your um manufacturing operation no um you know we've, we've been fortunate in that um you know right from the get-go um you know we're, we're actually bringing in money um and right. As I, I kind of mentioned, um, not through any deliberate sense, I'm, I'm not that smart, um, but we've just kept it very, very lean. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's kind of been our guiding ethos. You know, we, we haven't spent any money since we started on advertising, on PR, on promotion. Um, we've really just relied on our products. Um, and just, you know, as I said, um, picking up the phone and just getting out there and being okay with people saying, you know, I don't like it. And that's, you know, some people won't. And sure. hopefully enough people will. Well, that's great. Frank, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to know more about Frank and Gustus Vitae, go to gustusvitae.com. That's G-U-S-T-U-S-V-I-T-A-E.com. And when you go to Whole Foods or any other supermarket, um, go and look for the Gustus Vitae product. And if they don't have it, Go and bash on the door and demand that they stock it. And that'll help Frank quite a bit, I would imagine. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network right after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. Now, crowdfunding is how so many startup businesses get their funding these days, so I thought I'd talk about it tonight. The first step when you were seeking to raise money is to pick your platform. Now, this You've got to decide on whether you want a rewards-based campaign where in exchange for donations you give gifts or an equity-based campaign where people become shareholders in your business. So let's look at rewards crowdfunding first. Um, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, they're the first ones that come to mind, but there's a lot of specialty platforms which have got specific types of projects that are preferable. So, um, and all platforms are structured differently. Kickstarter's an all or none fundraiser. So if you don't, if you're looking for a 50 grand and you don't raise the 50 grand, then you get zip. But with Indiegogo, if you choose to pay up to 9% of funds raised, you get to keep all the funds that are pledged. With equity crowdfunding, crowdfunding Crowdfunder or, or Circle Up is where people become shareholders in your company. So Circle Up takes 7 to 10% of the funds raised and Crowdfunder has a relatively low monthly fee. Now the second step is to capture attention. Remember, you know, you've got to think that you're competing against tons of other opportunities. So your initial pitch and your message must be powerful enough to grab the potential investor's attention. They're going to go, wow, that's cool. I'm going to have a a bigger look at that. So you need to explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. You should tell a terrific story about yourself and the project or better still, relate that story back to a customer. And if you're raising investment, tell a great story in a really succinct pitch deck. And if you're creating a rewards crowdfunding pitch, videos can double your success rate. The third step is what's in it for them. When you focus on what's in it for investors, you create truly unique and compelling rewards that tie into your story and they'll raise more dollars. Don't just offer stuff. You know, ask whether you'd actually buy this reward yourself. Would I actually be interested in getting this, whatever it is? Look at offers by previous successful campaigns. Some of them are very creative in what they offer. And in equity crowdfunding, just focus on the terms you're offering your investment investors. Check out the free term sheet resource in Forbes for guidelines. The fourth step is fostering sponsor engagement. The most common mistake crowdfunders make both in rewards or equity crowdfunding, is to not fully engage their network of friends, family and supporters. For rewards crowdfunding, you know, you've got to have people ready to start funding on day one. Campaigns that accelerate quickly early 
and obtain 25 to 30% of their funding goal really quickly attract more attention. There's nothing worse than people going on to your offer and finding no investors and no money raised. That is the kiss of death. The fifth step is the power of notable investors. You know, the certain way to get people's attention is to get people or organisations behind your project who will bring credibility and trust to you and your business. For equity crowdfunding, having notable stakeholders, a quality team and advisors and board members and partners and existing investors, that provides assurance to potential investors and you can get up to six times the response in the fundraising just by having a great qualified professional team around you. And the most powerful step you can take is to find a lead investor before you launch the fundraising efforts. You know, this starts you off with whatever number of dollars instead of zero and uh, well as determining what what an investor would actually invest at. So what are the terms? So the lead investor is a critical part of launching a successful equity crowdfunding marketing plan. The sixth step is planned marketing and outreach. The, the, The results you get from crowdfunding are proportional to the effort and attention you put into it and integrating it into your own online and offline fundraising efforts. I mean, it needs to be part of a whole integrated, let's hit people from every angle as often as possible, as quickly as possible. Successful rewards campaigns put hundreds of hours into creative and marketing planning well before they launch. They then plan several pushes in their marketing to launch fund and drive funding. You've got to keep it up. You've got to keep your name out there and keep those investments coming in. (coughs) In equity crowdfunding, the effort goes into the structure of the actual investment offering, the terms, what you're going to offer, and completing all the legal agreements. Investments of 10,000 to 200,000 aren't often reached through broad marketing and PR. So, as happens in reward crowdfunding, In equity crowdfunding, donation amounts average closer to $25. So $25, bear that in mind if you're after $100,000 or a million, $25. In the US, the best month for crowdfunding is January and February. Don't ask me why, I have absolutely no idea. Just happens to be. The eighth step is timing the data perspective. The overall crowdfunding industry is growing exponentially. In 2011, just five years ago, it was 1.2 billion. This year, it's 8 billion for rewards and 4.3 billion for equity. In rewards crowdfunding, if you're looking to raise $50,000, the most common contribution is 25 bucks. And with a conversion rate of 3%, you've got to get 66,000 qualified people to look at your campaign. That's a lot of traffic in in 45 days and a hell of a lot of backers. So do you have the network, the reach, the press contacts and the marketing plan in place to meet those goals? In equity crowdfunding, the average investment from accredited investors is approximately 25 grand. 
And it's usually easier to find many investors at 10,000 than it is to find one or two really big investors. So, the, you know, when, when it's a really big investment, the risks are just that much greater. So what entrepreneurs are finding in equity crowdfunding is by lowering the minimum investment amount down to, say, $10,000 or $5,000 or even $1,000, you lower the risk of exposure for any single investor. And entrepreneurs will find it much more attractive and support many investors online at this amount. Now, crowdfunding is changing the rules of the game for fundraising and investing, and it is still accelerating. Now, I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, that's B-O-B-P-R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It goes out, as I said, 81,000 people get it every day. It takes just 30 seconds to read, and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. You can use it to chat. You can chat around the water cooler. People think Geez, this guy knows a hell of a lot of stuff. You can talk about it at the dinner table and your parents-in-law think, God, this guy's smart. He knows a lot of stuff. So it gives you great information that you can utilise in business or just general. And it covers all sorts of um of information. It covers everything from crowdfunding to, you know, Amazon, what Amazon's doing, new apps, new medical technologies, all sorts of things. So it's important to get and you can read it in just 30 seconds. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're just taking up too much space. I wrote a newsletter today for next week that talks about set your goals as high as possible. Don't let the dream takers take away your dreams. Go for a hell of a lot more than you think you can achieve. You know, it's it's the old take the biggest bite you can and chew like hell because it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Next week, I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard where technology meets entertainment and I hope you can join me again. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. I'm Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.